0: Subject to eligibility requirements, rewards vary depending on market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park.
1: From the small towns
0: to the big cities, we bring you the stories that matter.
1: This is. This is. This is. The Our American Stories Podcast.
4: This is Lee Habib, the host of the Our American Stories podcast. We're excited to bring you some great stories from our team. We work hard to bring you these stories each and every week. And we love sharing this content with you, stories about a country that, while not perfect, is beautiful. And if you listen to our podcast and the stories on our website, well, you know it's true. While our content may be free to listen to, it certainly is not free to make we'd like to ask you to join us financially in all we do here. Visit OurAmericanStories.com and go to the Giving tab. You can sign up to give $5, $10, or even $20 a month. Each gift you make makes a difference because it's for you and through you that we tell these stories. And now for today's stories, we'll bring you the story of Mad Anthony Wayne and the Battle for America. We'll also bring you the story of the first whiskey distillery in Memphis. But first, Jay Moore brings us his own family's story, one of loss, discovery, and selflessness. Here's Jay.
0: It was after my grandmother had passed away that I realized just how deeply her lack of education embarrassed her. I think it was a secret shame that she carried In her naughty pine-paneled den, there were bookshelves that were filled with hardback books. That was the room that she used the most, watching her soap operas or crocheting, working a jigsaw puzzle, visiting with family members. But I never one time saw her with one of those books in her lap. Following her death in 1992, it was my dad who came to own the contents of those bookshelves. And so one day I sat down to look over the books and see if there are any that I might enjoy reading, the first book I picked up was the historical fiction of Catherine Marshall. It was titled *Christie*. On the first page, I saw in my grandmother's familiar handwriting that she had written this: "This is one of the best books that I have read." For that reason alone, I thought I might like to read it as well, and I started a stack to take to my car. Picking up another book, I noticed the same handwritten notation in a 50s-era novel. Ditto for the third book and the fourth book and really nearly all the rest. It seemed odd that she would record such thoughts as though she herself might one day pick the book back up and be reminded that it was worth reading. But it slowly dawned on me. She was not writing introspective analysis nor trying to convey the quality to a future reader who might pick the book from her shelf She wrote comments in the front of books she never read because her elementary level education shamed her to write those fake reactions. She wrote them to throw others off the scent. When Granny was 14, she took a trip west from her home near Waco, Texas to visit her family in Runnels County, which was about 120 miles west. On that trip, She met a neighbor of her relatives who was nine years older and who would become my grandfather. The following fall in 1923, they were married. Granny was 15 and my granddad was 24. They lived in a two-room board and batten house that my granddad built on some land that his parents had given to him so that he could farm. It was in that house that Granny gave birth at age 16. I never knew if a doctor or even a neighbor was available to help with the birth, but in the end, the baby girl was dead. A small box was fashioned to serve as a coffin, and my grandfather, alone, took the box to the cemetery east of Winters, Texas. He placed the child in the earth next to another infant. That infant was his own brother, who also had died at birth so he buried his daughter to the side of his own brother. 16 is young to be a mother, much less one who is grieving, and I wondered just how my grandmother coped inside that little house. By the time she was 18, she had a healthy baby boy followed by five more sons. When I was growing up, we were often at Granny and Granddaddy's house. Upstairs, at the end of their hall, was my grandfather's office. On the wall was a large, framed family tree that a draftsman friend had drawn for him. It was comforting to see the generations diagrammed in the logic of family connections. Their sons were the branches, and my dad was near the tree's middle. But it was the first branch, the one down low, that was intriguing to me. A very short branch that was just labeled, Infant. My grandfather died in 1985, and in just a short time, my grandmother's sons had convinced her to sell the house that she had lived in for 35 years, and to disseminate all the furniture and the dishes and the family tree. She moved to a smaller house, but before long, she moved from there to a nursing home when she was 84. During those days of her living in just one room with commercial furniture and a view of an empty field, I stopped by several times each week and my grandmother and I had conversations. Some of them were short, but others were long enough that by the end she had fallen asleep. We discussed our family, church, what was happening in the news. I don't recall how it was, but on one visit, we talked about that family tree and I brought up that lowest branch. Granny told me the story of the unnamed baby girl and the burial and those difficult days that she went through so long ago. She bemoaned that she had never visited the grave, and now she couldn't even remember the name of the cemetery and was only vaguely familiar with its location somewhere east of Winters, Texas. But she knew a woman still living in Winters who would know, and I sensed that she was asking me to go on a mission for her. That is how I came to drive 40 miles south from my house to pick up Leona Billups one day, at her small home. Leona had known my grandparents for most of her life. She had me drive east on a to market road, and she told me of the one-time community known as Truitt. The one-room school community was long gone, and really the only remnant was the Truett Cemetery. Finally, we came across a green sign pointing to Truett Cemetery, although it was actually pointing at a gate into a farmer's field. And since it was raining, we didn't go any farther. The next day, I went to see Granny, caught her up on Leona's life and all about her family, and I told her that I knew the approximate location of the cemetery, but that I would have to go back and open the gate and drive down the rutted path. Granny told me then that her infant daughter was buried beside the other baby, my granddad's brother, but she said she was not even sure if that grave was marked. On my second trip south, I took a friend. We arrived at the gate opposite the Truett Cemetery sign. We drove slowly through the tall grass between tire ruts before coming to a second gate. Soon, we saw a fence at the end of the half-mile path. The fence surrounded a square plot of land with a wide silver gate that had welded metal letters spelling out Truett on top. And just inside the gate were some headstones that were visible, but others were far back among cactus and yuccas and grass that seemed prime real estate for snakes. And we hadn't brought anything like hoes or shovels to hack at that growth or to ward off reptiles. I stepped in to begin a hunt for a headstone I was not sure even existed. The markers were spread far apart and there was no evidence of any row or path like there is in most cemeteries. I gingerly stepped over cactus and cautiously examined the etched stones to see if there was one with my last name. Towards the back corner, I used my heel to push over a yucca growing right next to a small stone. And behind the plant was a weathered inscription cut into a sandstone marker reading, Infant son of D.S. and M.F. Moore, Daniel Spurgeon and Mary Frances, my great-grandparents, the grave of my granddad's brother. A smile of relief came, for there was the spot where my grandfather had laid his daughter nearly 70 years before. The next day, seated by Granny's bed, I watched her face register a strange relief. An 84-year-old mother who had never forgotten a daughter who had never breathed life. Granny had finally found the child that she had given birth to when she was just 16. A few days later, she told me that she had decided to put a marker on the grave and she asked me to go to the monument company to choose one and to pick one similar in size to the one marking the adjoining grave. She said that she wanted the marker to have a lamb on it. And she had decided on a name for her infant daughter. The name was Dixie Lee. Dixie was my granny's name and so I asked, for you? No, she said. Dixie Lee was the name of Bing Crosby's wife, and I always liked her. A few weeks later, I returned to Truett Cemetery, followed by a truck from the Monument Company. But because I was not sure on which side Dixie Lee was buried, my grandmother had told me to just choose one. I chose the north side, putting her that much closer to her mother. For the past 30 summers, I have returned to Truett Cemetery... Into the grave of Dixie Lee. And there I've cleared the growth and smoothed the ground, marking the site of Granny's never-forgotten child. My grandmother, Dixie Moore, died only a few months after she found her daughter.
4: And my goodness, what a beautiful story and a special thanks to Jay Moore. And thanks to Robbie for doing a superb job on this. And what a thing to do for his grandma. And this story, my goodness. She not only never forgot, she finally got to name her baby. And she did it with her grandson. Spectacular. Spectacular. I hope it inspires so many of you listening to get to know your elders. And for them to get to know you. Because not knowing your own story. Oh my goodness. If you love what you're listening to, go ahead and please give us a five-star rating. And while you're at it, review us. Let us know what you like about the show. It helps others find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to our podcasts. Up next, Monty and Dr. Mary Stockwell tell the story of one of history's most interesting leaders who wasn't actually all that mad.
1: Chances are, if you're from the Midwest, you've probably heard of Mad Anthony Wayne before. Fort Wayne is named after him. Wayne County, where Detroit is located, is too, and there's a bridge bearing his name in Toledo, Ohio. But he's a lot more than just his namesake. Here's Dr. Mary Stockwell, author of Unlikely General: Mad Anthony Wayne in the Battle for America, with why that is.
2: I can tell you my own experience when I would tell people I'm going, to, I'm writing a book about Anthony Wayne, and they would say, Why? Why are you bothering? He was mad. He was a madman. And his name is everywhere out here. We don't just have a bridge about Anthony Wayne. We have Anthony Wayne vet clinics and Anthony Wayne plumbing and Anthony Wayne roofing and all kinds of things. But in the mind of most people, I started to ask them, what do you think about him? And they would say, well, he was this wild madman and he loved war and all these things. And that's that's kind of who he is. Uh, Within the last century, Wayne has kind of come into the memory of the American Revolution as just a wild man who loved to kill the British, and then he came out here and he just loved to kill the Indians. None of this is true. There's no resemblance to the real Anthony Wayne. He was born on New Year's Day, 1745, just outside of Philadelphia. He was very wealthy. might have been one of the wealthiest young men who had participated in the Revolution. His father trained him to be a lawyer, but Wayne wanted to be a soldier. And his father said, we're in the British Empire. You're a young colonial. You're never gonna make it in the British Army. But he had a vivid imagination. And from the time he was little, he was swept up in stories of warfare, the glory of it all, leading men in battle. He would later write as he was fighting the revolution. Sometimes he would look ahead and he would say, I can see myself on horseback and I'm riding into Philadelphia and we've won a great battle and the laurels are on me the way they were on Caesar and the golden light is upon me. He loved that. He loved the camaraderie of being with his fellow men. He loved serving George Washington. But the dream was glory and in his imagination it all seems so wonderful and so beautiful. You have to remember too that if a, a young boy was well educated in revolutionary times or pre-revolutionary times he would have learned Latin. And to learn Latin, you would have read the great writers in Latin, uh, ancient Romans. One of the greatest writers was Julius Caesar. So he read all his commentaries. He knew every battle. And in his imagination, he ran it almost like a movie. Someday I'll be a part of this glorious enterprise and to think I'll, I'll win fame and fortune. I'll go down in the annals of my nation. But his father got him a job as a surveyor. He said, I think if he can get out in the, in the world and survey land, that will maybe get some of this energy off of him. What happens, though, is the American Revolution starts to get underway, and he joins the revolutionary cause. He becomes a member of the Pennsylvania Assembly, and he's one of the very first people in the country who says, it's time to break away from Great Britain. And he says uh, to anyone who will listen to him, either in the assembly or in all the taverns outside of Philadelphia, he says, um, we're a de facto republic. We don't have a king, we don't have nobility. We are the people, we should rule ourselves. He was on fire for the revolution, the way Thomas Paine was, the way John Adams was, long before the revolution started. And once the Continental Army starts to form, this childhood dream he had to be a soldier, that finally be realized. And he goes off to George Washington's camp on Long Island in 1776. Again, a um, very handsome man, beautifully dressed. His, fa- his father taught him to always look your part. He knew every battle Julius Caesar ever fought. He bounds into Washington's camp. I am here to serve. I'm here to serve the revolution. I'm here to serve my nation. But he knew nothing really beyond what he had read in his ancient history books. But when Washington met him, he said, well, He's got one thing, at least, and that's enthusiasm. It's interesting, the very first thing George Washington gave him to do, he said, well, this man's a gentleman. Uh, How about you join us in a fox hunt? But very quickly, Wayne was given one assignment after another, and he becomes really better and better at it. The very first thing he was sent to do, he was sent with the American army to a place called Three Rivers in Canada. Now, this is June 1776. We as Americans often forget that we try to invade Canada and get the Canadians over on our side. Every time we entered Canada it ended in disaster. And in this battle of three rivers, the United States across the St. Lawrence River, the army is completely defeated. Who leads the retreat? Anthony Wayne. He leads the retreat of the army back into New York and people say about him he seems to snap to attention immediately once the battle begins. What he remembers because he writes to his young wife about every battle he's going into. And he tells her, he goes, when I was heading to Three Rivers, the first thing I realized, all that glory and all that wonder of childhood is gone. I could possibly die in this horrible battle. What am I doing this for? But once the battle begins again, he snapped to attention. So Washington learned very quickly if he needed somebody to help with a retreat, Wayne just naturally could move an army faster, get it out of danger.
1: After losing the Battle of Three Rivers, Anthony Wayne would be sent to Fort Ticonderoga and hated every minute of it. He was out of the action, but the action would soon come.
2: He goes on to the Battle of Brandywine. Now we're in September 1777. Washington calls him back. This is now a frightening time because the British army is coming to take the city of Philadelphia. So Washington puts all his men along Brandywine Creek to the west, trying to stop them there. He puts Wayne right up on the bluff Looking over Brandywine Creek gives him the artillery. What's interesting about Wayne at this time, he realizes on the battlefield, something's going wrong. Goes to Washington and he said, I don't think we're in the right position. I think the British are not crossing where we think they're crossing. I think they're coming north. They're gonna come around Brandywine Creek. They're gonna attack us from the rear. We're gonna be surrounded. So he had an ability to figure out in the midst of a battle, what was happening. George Washington made a terrible mistake. He told Wayne, go back up to that bluff. The British are crossing where we think they're crossing. Wayne was right. The Continental Army was almost surrounded, almost destroyed, but they got out of there.
1: But despite Washington's mistake at Brandywine Creek, Anthony Wayne remained one of his greatest supporters, even though they had some major differences.
2: George Washington was the kind of person who always controlled his emotions. Anthony Wayne... (laughs) was a very enthusiastic, wore his heart on his sleeve. He had no sense that anybody was greater or lesser than anyone else. He just befriended George Washington and was much warmer to him than probably Washington was to Wayne. Maybe the most wonderful things I discovered was, well, Wayne was Washington's cheerleader. Other people, again, they respected Washington, they kept him at a distance. Wayne didn't feel that way, he felt they were friends. Before every battle, he would write George Washington a letter saying, you're gonna win. You're in a great position. Yes, Caesar did it before, you can do it. You can, you can win this battle. And when it was over and Washington didn't, lo- didn't win, he often lost the battle, who would he get a letter from? Anthony Wayne. And Wayne would say to him, we're in a better position than we were before we lost. We will get through this, you will get better. And he said, I I want you to be the next uh, Julius Caesar. He realizes very quickly, he's not Julius Caesar. This isn't going to be a war of glorious battles. This is going to be a war of attrition and staying in the field and keeping the army in the field. And finally, Wayne realizes, well, I was disappointed, maybe up to Valley Forge, that he's not Julius Caesar. But I realize this man that I love and respect so much, my elder brother, is a new kind of leader. He's a political leader. He's a moral leader. He's got to keep the army in the field. This is what a modern revolution looks like.
1: Wayne's support for Washington would pay off, and he would work his way up the ranks in the Continental Army. But the war wasn't all glory for Anthony Wayne. And in fact, it became anything but for him.
2: He's remembered for three big mistakes that he made, Washington gives him an assignment. He said, in the middle of the night, I want you to attack the baggage train of the British as they head east into Philadelphia. Just get the baggage train. Wayne gets his men up on the road into Philadelphia in between the Paoli and the Warren Tavern. The people come to him and say, the British know you're here. Then he said, no, the British will not do this. I am not gonna listen to farmers and children about where the British are. Well, in the middle of the night, the British did strike. It was called the Paoli Massacre. Many of his men were killed. He got them out of there, he retreated, which he was so good at. But if he had listened and stopped with his dreams of what he thought was gonna happen and listened to what was happening to him on the ground, it wouldn't have happened.
1: Then on January 1st, 1781, Wayne oversaw the Pennsylvania Line Mutiny, a situation that happened when countless men, tired of war, threw down their weapons and threatened to defect to the British Army. But it was a third failure that caused the press to apply a nickname to him that had been used by his own men.
2: At a place called Greenspring Plantation, he's convinced. Oh, oh! Look, there's a baggage train of Cornwallis going back to North Carolina. Well, I'll, I'll attack it. That kind of bloody their nose. He lines his men up, and then he realizes, wait a minute! Cornwallis's entire army is still here. What am I to do? This man who can think so quickly on his feet said for the only time in his battle he couldn't remember what to do because I don't know what to do I don't think Julius Caesar was ever in this position so finally he realized at the Battle of Camden which had happened in South Carolina the American army had been in a similar situation they attacked to surprise the enemy and then they retreated quickly that's what he did he attacked kind of stunned Cornwallis and then they retreated away from green spring plantation He lost all his artillery many of his horses he lost many of his men. Again, Washington faulted him for that. And this is the first time you see the nickname Mad Anthony" applied to him in the northern press. He had been called Mad just because of his terrible temper. He was got the nickname because he had a spy, a little Irish spy who would help him. And the spy would come and go as he pleased. Well, one night, his, his name was Jemmy, Jemmy the Rover, Anthony Wayne's looking for him, where is Jemmy? I I need information on the British and Jemmy's gone. When Jemmy comes back to camp that night, they tell him, Anthony Wayne's looking for you and he's, you know, he's steaming, he's angry. And this is where the word mad comes from. The Irishman said, ah, then he's mad, he's mad. The general is mad, you know, best that I go off uh, and not confront him, Jemmy was never seen again, even though Wayne told his wife, see if you can find him. That's, that's what the nickname was. But now people say, maybe he's mad, a little bit crazy and reckless on the battlefield.
1: And Wayne would soon start to despair.
2: He goes through an immense transformation in the revolution. And he gives a record of it in his really beautiful letters. He might start out in 1776, this is all glory, this is all wonderful, this is all fun. But as he watches his men suffer, without clothes, without shoes, without food, without pay, always having to beg the political leaders and the people, the populace for help, he begins to despair over the cause, the American cause. And it begins to uh, wear on him. He shot uh, before Yorktown, that wound never heals. He becomes sick and he goes into depression. And his depression, he calls it, it's the blue damsels who come in the night. How can this be happening to us? How can we be a turning point in world history and the people don't support us? One of the most interesting things I discovered are his writings after Yorktown, when the Battle of Yorktown is won. Everyone is gloriously happy. I always think of Trumbull's beautiful painting when everybody's lined up at Yorktown. It's so stunningly beautiful. And that's not what happened. That's not what Wayne remembered. Wayne remembered how the British had to walk with the Hessians on this thing called the surrender. They walked out to the surrender field. You can see it in Yorktown today. Wayne, in the midst of all this jubilation, he never forgot, he looked across the way and there were the French in their silks and satins. They were gorgeous. And he looked at his own men on the other side of the road and he said, we're barefoot. They have, some of my men couldn't even stand here. They couldn't even cover themselves. Their clothes are threadbare. And that set him into despair. How can we be a nation that doesn't understand what's at stake? And he begged Washington, I'm going home. And it suddenly dawned on him, wait a minute, I have a little boy and a little girl. I left them as infants, Margareta and Isaac. I have to get an education for Isaac in a trade. I've got to make a fine lady out of Margareta. I've got to get her into school and get her married. And he says, I'm going home, I've had it. And Washington says, no, you're going to Georgia. You're gonna go fight uh, with Nathaniel Green. And in a, a terrible campaign, 1782 to 1783, that is completely forgotten today, Wayne goes south and he's given a 500 man army and he's told, you gotta bring peace to Georgia and make sure the government works and Georgia remains a state. That's where he really sinks into despair. That's where he writes to his wife, who doesn't even write to him anymore. And he says, "This I'm satiated of this horror trade of blood. I, can't, I don't want to do this anymore. But he somehow secures Georgia.
1: After the war, Wayne was at his lowest point. The British were defeated. He had secured Georgia. And his dreams of an independent United States were made reality. His life was shattered, and so was his marriage.
2: Anthony Wayne was, again, married when he's very young to a girl named Mary, and he called her Polly. He had two children very quickly, a little girl, Margarita, a little boy, Isaac. They were only about four and two when he goes off to Philadelphia. It appeared to be a happy marriage, but as the war goes on, and he is, becomes a famous general, women begin to flock to him. And in the beginning, he has flirtations with women. But as time goes on, he has actual romances with women. He falls madly in love with Nathaniel Green's wife, Catherine Green. She was a beauty. She had a temperament like him, kind of witty, sarcastic, love to dance, but also a tendency to despair. Uh, he was so close to Catherine Green, people would tell Nathaniel Green, this great general, you better watch it. Your wife and your friend, best friend, something's going on. And you say, no, no, they're not crossing the line, but she was the love of his life, absolute love of his life. News of this starts to come back to Mrs. Wayne. And for a while, she kind of pushes it aside. These stories can't be true. But a point finally comes when she realizes, I've lost him. It's the way, say you're a movie star, a rock star, and you go off and you have this adulation even in the midst of suffering, and you forget your family. The real break for Mrs. Wayne comes at Yorktown. Wayne has come home after so many battles. He says, I'm gonna come home, the war is over, I can't do this anymore. And when he goes off to Yorktown, and then he has to go off to Georgia, there's a break there and she never quite forgives him and they never quite restore the relationship, but he never stops writing to her. He writes to her like he does to Washington. Before every battle, he writes to her after every battle. He doesn't ask her about herself. It would have driven me nuts if I was Mrs. Wing. But he pours out maybe his best writing to this love of his of his youth. And he tells her about the transformation he's passing through and that he doesn't, doesn't like war anymore. He doesn't want glory and he's losing so much. Wayne
1: also had a hard time settling down after so many years of bloody conflict.
2: After the revolution, he can't go home again. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie The Best Years of Our Lives about men who come back from World War II, but um, my father was in World War II and he used to say, watch that movie. It's hard to be in this thick of battle and then to come home and do normal things. He tries to come home, he can't settle down. Georgia has given him a plantation outside of Savannah for his services in the war. He goes down there. He's convinced, I'm going to become this great planter. It's a disaster. He ends up in total debt. His depression grows greater and greater and greater. He drinks heavily. He's sick. He has the gout. On most mornings, he can't even stand. He has to wrap his arms and legs in flannel. His body is really suffering. But he tells his wife, I, I'm really doing this for you and the children. I'm trying to make money. I think he was doing it just because he couldn't give up the struggle after the war was over. He goes so far into debt by about 1790, 1791, he almost sells off his family's farm and leaves his family homeless in Pennsylvania. His friends are stunned. They're saying, Wayne, you've lost your mind. Come back to Pennsylvania, stop this. He finally um, is facing debtor's prison. He's so afraid he's going to go into debtor's prison. His children, you know, he's lost his relationship with his children. And he decides, you know, if I run for office, I think you get immunity from prison. So in 1791, he runs for the House of Representatives from Georgia. He gets elected. He gets to Congress. He sits in Congress. He says, I'm safe. I paid my debts. I sold my southern plantation. Everything's great. And the man he defeated shows up in Philadelphia, comes to Congress and said, Wayne's supporters stuffed ballot boxes to get him elected. He didn't know about it, but it was corrupt. And Wayne is thrown out of Congress. And he has just been humiliated by being thrown out of Congress. So by the early 1790s, when George Washington is president, Wayne is quite a scandalous man.
1: But nevertheless, the United States was in a predicament. In the West... We were having massive issues with fighting the Indians and Washington needed a general.
2: Washington has a plan to move us west. And can you imagine if we hadn't moved across the Appalachians, if we hadn't crossed the Ohio, if we hadn't gotten all the way out to the Mississippi River, we would have been thirteen little states, you know, dying on the vine. Washington has this plan where I'll negotiate with the Indians, I'll respect them, I'll buy their land, I'll I'll pay them money and goods every year and they'll slowly allow the Americans to cross the Ohio River. They signed treaties to do that, but then they confederated with the help of the British. They were led by Little Turtle Blue Jacket, uh, great chiefs like that. They just say, Washington, if you cross the Ohio River, it'll run red with the blood of your young men. Washington keeps negotiating, but one army is destroyed in 1790 under Harmer. November 1791, a second army is destroyed under Arthur St. Clair. At this very moment, Wayne is just thrown out of Congress, and George Washington has to find a general. He's desperate. What he does is he gets a list of all the people who had been generals through the American Revolution, looks down the list. Oh my lord, he said, I need somebody active, brave, and sober, these men are all old, sick, and tired. He sees everybody and he criticizes everybody. He looks at Wayne. He doesn't. He's worried about Wayne. Yes, he's active. Yes, yeah, he's enterprising. But oh, maybe he doesn't always have the best judgment. I don't know if I can send this man westward. Will he? Will there be a mutiny? Will he spend too much money? When I've got, you know, I've got James Madison breathing down my neck about my expenditures. Should I choose him? He remembers his mistakes. He forgets everything he did. He tells his cabinet, "I'm thinking about Wayne." And they explode. It's Knox at war, it's Jefferson at state, it's Hamilton at treasury. They go, you can't pick this man. He's too He's too scandalous, He, he's just, just please don't do it. But Washington has to look back. What about Wayne does he know nobody else knows? Well, he knows that Wayne thinks he's perfection. He knows that Wayne is devoted to him. He remembers that, that if I pick him, he'll fight with me, he'll stay with me, he won't turn on me. He remembers those letters. Washington remembers how before every battle, he'd get this great letter, you can do it, afterward, he would write the, we'll still win. Uh, Probably the last two things in his favor, he was from Pennsylvania. Washington didn't want to appear as if the West belonged to Virginia. He kept appointing generals from Pennsylvania to go fight the Indians when necessary. And the last thing, Wayne wanted the job. Wayne had been writing to politicians in 1789 when the constitution is is approved i'll do anything what do you want me to do i will i will help america if there's something i can do to help my country let me do it and wayne at washington says i'm taking a chance on anthony wayne and again when he does he has to appoint him in 1792 to command this new army in the west and people write to him like um How can you appoint this man with all these scandals and all this? And Washington says he's got to overcome his foibles. But Wayne also understands the seriousness of the situation, and he'll live up to it. He remembered the French and Indian War. He was a little boy. And he knew there were exciting tales of warfare over the mountains. His father fought in the French and Indian War. But he has no experience with Indians except uh, uh, women up at uh, Fort Ticondroga. He sees the Indian women who come into the fort, uh, often as mistresses of the soldiers. But no experience fighting anybody, no experience until he gets to Georgia. When he gets to Georgia and he has to deal with the Creek Indians who have seen their trade disrupted because he's now breaking their tie with the British in Savannah. He writes speeches to them. They're almost embarrassing to read. You know, he has no idea who he's talking to, That he's talking to real people who are traders who are involved in the British economy. And he tells the Indians, you're simple children of the forest, you know. You stay over there and hunt your deer. Let the white man over here fight our battles and we'll be friends when the war's over. His camp is ambushed in 1783. He comes close to being killed. That kind of wakes him up. You know, these are real people. They are deeply involved with the world economy. They're deeply involved with diplomacy. They're great fighters. And he gains a respect for the Indians almost overnight. He talks to anybody who's been out west, and he says, I am going to learn how they fight, and I'm going to show them the respect they deserve. These are not savages. These are the top soldiers. They know this continent better than we do. My God, I'm gonna have to train my army be as good as them an absolute terror (laughs) when he leaves philadelphia in the spring of 1792 he writes his last will and testament he goes i'm not coming back from this alive the power on the north american continent in the 1790s not the united states we're weak the power the great confederation nations out west the shawnee the delaware and the british who were on american soil arming and supporting them the british wanted us defeated in the west so He comes west with immense respect, and he's got to teach his men how to respect the Indians more than anything else, he discovers. I gotta find ways to teach them not to be afraid because my men are terrified. Let's say that you're going up against the British. That's frightening. You line up the Continental Army on one side, the British line up on the other, and they keep coming after you in waves and waves and waves. Wayne says, "That's, that's frightening enough. He said, the difference is if you're going into the wilderness, you've got to train your army and have them so perfectly trained because as you're marching, probably hoping for a confrontation or afraid of a confrontation with them, he said, they're tracking you, but you'll never see them. You'll never see them until the moment they strike. And he said, when they line up, they will line up, not like savages. they're going to line up against you and they will command the place, the time, the battle. If you don't immediately get into position and don't immediately throw back their first assault, you're gonna be surrounded, you're going to be defeated, and there's no quarter. It's not like you're gonna be a prisoner of the British and sent off to a prison ship, you will be killed. And you will be killed in some horrifying ways.
1: And the hard training would work for Wayne, and luckily so, because negotiations would break down and he would once again be forced to fight.
2: He gets command of the army. There is no army. It's been wiped out in November 1791, and Washington tells him, you're the commander of this new thing. We're going to call it the Legion of the United States. Get out first to Pittsburgh. He'll later be sent to Cincinnati, and then he'll be sent up to a place called Greenville where he built build this big fort. They promised him 5,000 men. He never gets more than about 1,000 men. And they said, train the men so perfectly that if we call you into battle, you will defeat them. But don't scare the Indians, because the negotiations are ongoing, so don't appear too aggressive. If we do tell you the negotiations have broken down and you must fight, then you will fight. And Wayne does what he's told. He said, "I, I can train the men to march. I can train them to follow orders. I can train them to shoot. They can't shoot. But he said, the thing that I'm really struggling with, they're so terrified. In the very first Indian attack, he lines his men up, and he says, "Okay, I'm going to go up on the ramparts, check for the Indians, and then I'm going to come back, and we'll be ready to fight. Indians aren't there. When he turns around to go back to his men, they've all fled. They've completely fled. They don't want to fight. And he, he had to do this a few times when he was training his men when they were so terrified. He said, all right, line everybody up, gets on his horse, goes back and forth in front of his men, this, this army he's trying to put together. He said, if the battle begins and the riflemen up at the front run, I'm going to order the dragoons behind them to shoot the riflemen. If the dragoons run, then the light infantry behind them shoot the dra- dra- dragoons. If everybody runs, I'm going to turn my own artillery on you guys. What he wanted them to be uh, was more afraid of him than the, than the enemy. And he also said, um, if we all run, we all die, because there's no quarter in Indian warfare. After two years of training his men, Washington tells Knox to tell Wayne, the negotiations are done. Start taking that thousand-man army, Call up the Kentucky militia, the mounted riflemen. Start marching north. Go up the Maumee River towards Lake Erie. The British have just built an illegal fort there in 1794. It's south of Detroit. They're arming, they're directing the Indians. The, they're, you're probably going to meet the Indians and the British and the Canadian militia somewhere between Greenville and what is now the city of Toledo, Ohio. Just start marching you must defeat them. And when you defeat them, you gotta get a treaty. It's a nerve-wracking march and it's finally August the 19th. No Indians have attacked them. And they begin the final march on the morning of August the 20th. The night before this, there's been a terrible rainstorm and all the drums have lost their, their, you know, their ability to pound. They're all loosened in the rain. And Wayne is like, I've trained you guys for two years to march to my orders and to line up in battle uh, in a line against the Indians based on these. He calls this young lieutenant who has been, uh, he's taken liking to and he puts a green sash around him. And he says, if the battle comes tomorrow, you have to ride back and forth through the lines with my orders. And that young man with the green sash is William Henry Harrison. The shots ring out against Wayne's men Wayne's men run in terror. And suddenly, uh, within five minutes, Wayne has them in perfect order. Everybody lines up in these huge, two huge parallel lines against the Indians. They're fighting over trees that were downed. The battle goes on for about maybe an hour. Indians attack on the right, they attack on the left, they come up the center. The eyewitnesses of the Indians who were in the battle are amazing, they go, "He, he didn't fold. They held their line and they said suddenly we heard Wayne's trumpets, we hear his trumpets on the left, the right, the center, he's coming after us, he's surrounding us. And they flee the field, they run back about three or four miles to this illegal British fort and the British, and then they close the gates in the faces of these Indians and they said we don't know you and they, we didn't have anything to do with this battle and then the Indians have to flee with their families back to wherever they've come. It's. We now call it the Battle of Fallen Timbers. Wayne called it the Battle of the Rapids. He said, I remember when we got up to the rapids of the river, bang, the Indian line was formed against us. It was classic Brandywine, classic Germantown. They were lined up to fight us and we were ready. We we didn't fold. My men, he was stunned. He never recovered from this victory. He goes, I, I think I want a victory. Um, it's, uh, it was, again, this is the battle that has all the monuments out here, but nobody knows who Wayne was or what he was fighting about. He's fighting to allow Americans to settle north of the Ohio. It takes a year for the Indians to finally come in and write a treaty. They come in a year later, they write the Treaty of Greenville, and they say, all right, America, you can settle north of the Ohio. We'll move back towards the lakes. We will ally with each other. We'll trade with each other. And the British also signed Jay's treaty and they say, we leave. We leave, we're going back to Canada. It's uh, in the end, a great victory. What Wayne has really won is about maybe 10 years of peace, 1795 to 1805, to allow America's to grow Western and become stronger and um, really win the country from the Appalachians to the Mississippi, win it for real. That's, that's the military side of things. That's the battle that Anthony Wayne wins, but he, he almost never for the few main, remaining months of his life could hardly believe that he actually trained an army, that they stood and fight and they won and defeated this powerful enemy.
4: And great work on that, Monty, and a special thanks. To Dr. Mary Stockwell, author of Unlikely General, Mad Anthony Wayne, and the Battle for America, so much epic storytelling there. He had no experience fighting the Indians or with the Indians, but he came to respect them as adversaries, as real people, and in the end, grew to command a real fighting force that was able to achieve General Washington's objectives. And a special thanks to the great folks at Hillsdale College who help support all of the storytelling that we do here. And by the way, Hillsdale does some terrific storytelling of their own. Go to hillsdale.edu and sign up for their terrific free and online courses. That's hillsdale.edu. The courses are free, but my goodness, they are memorable. And by the way, we're always looking for stories from you. We want to hear them, and you can send them to us. At OurAmericanStories.com, click on the Your Stories tab and share your story with us and with our listeners. We can't wait to hear them. Finally, Robbie brings us the story of Old Dominic Distillery, which starts back in 1859 with an Italian immigrant and a fruit cart. Add in a Kentucky woman who didn't drink until she was 21, Alex Castle, and you get the first whiskey distillery in the city of Memphis since Prohibition as well as the first female head distiller in the state of Tennessee
3: So one of the best things to me about working for Old Dominic and DeCanali and Company is the history of it That history dates back to 1866 and it is very tangible history. That whole family held on to so many documents and ledger books and letters. I don't know what they were thinking when they held on to it all, but I know we're we're very happy that it's there now. The family history isn't just some story that's been passed down by word of mouth. It is a history that is very, very real, um, and that we can show to everyone just how authentic that story is and to be able to be a part of such an authentic story um, and hopefully you know be a part of its its history eventually is just it's very rewarding so our founder Domenico Canali, uh, was an italian immigrant and he came over to the states in 1859 landed in new orleans and decided to take a riverboat up to memphis He already had family here. His uncle had a business already. He decided to work for his uncle. That building is literally about 100 yards from the uh, current distillery. Worked for him for a couple years and decided to start his own company in 1866, at which time he founded Deacon Alley Company. Started off as a modest little fruit cart and he would just go up and down what is now Front Street selling fruit. Over the years that grew, became a much bigger distribution company, started distributing beer because he had refrigerated trucks and decided in the midst of all of that to found Old Dominic whiskey. He did not distill his own product, but he did buy H product barrels from other states. So we have records of barrels from Ohio, Kentucky, Indiana, and he would bring them down on the railroads and uh, blend them here under the label of Old Dominic It was actually one of the biggest whiskey brands in the southern region during that time. And of course, Prohibition hit, and so old Dominic whiskey had to stop being produced. Fortunately, the other parts of the company continued on, so the fruit distribution, the beer distribution, all of that continued on through Prohibition. And sadly, Dominico did not see the repeal of Prohibition. He actually died just a few days before it was repealed. Deacon & Company continued on, just without the whiskey. Bring it up to, I guess it was the late 90s, they actually sold off the food distribution, but still maintained the beer distribution that they had. And so they were the Anheuser-Busch distributor in Memphis. And then in 2010, I believe it was, they actually sold that off as well. And so they kind of had lost all of their Memphis foothold. They had other businesses, other investments, just nothing actually in Memphis. And so in 2013, when they found a bottle of Dominic Totti, basically they found this bottle full, still wax sealed. And they decided to crack it open. I believe one of them actually tasted the liquid, (laughs) but had that liquid analyzed, they sent it to California to see if we could figure out what actually was in that product, because with all of the documents that the family held on to, they never held onto the recipe for this product, go figure. And so with the help of a lab out in California, they learned the different components that were present in that bottle couldn't figure out the exact ratios or anything like that, so no specific recipe, but they were able to figure out what was in it. And then from there, we essentially reverse engineered it. And so today's president, Chris Canali Jr., wanted to see the company get back to Memphis, wanted more than just their headquarters to be here. He decided, this seems like a cool idea. Someone said, well, why don't you sell the brand? He said, no. This is how we get back to Memphis. And so he and his cousin, Alex Canale, decided to open up what is now Old Dominic Distillery. That construction project officially started in 2015. And that was the same year that they decided to bring on a head distiller. And I was lucky enough to get a message on LinkedIn. I had nothing better to do. I said, sure, I'll come down for an interview and ended up deciding to move to Memphis um, that same year. And so about a year of construction and we were actually ready to produce the first whiskey, not just out of Old Dominic, but the first whiskey produced in Memphis ever. There were no distilleries here even before Prohibition. Um, So December of 2016 was kind of a, a big year for Old Dominic and for Memphis. And then flash forward a couple months, May of 2017, and we were actually finished with all of construction and open to the public um, for our first tours at the beginning of May. Um, and since then, we have added multiple products. We now have two vodkas, we have our Memphis toddy, we have a gin that's about to come out, and we also have our Hewling Station bourbon, and even the Hewling Station line. We're about to release even more products under it. So it's been a very, very busy two, two and a half years. So I am originally from Kentucky. I grew up in a small town called Burlington. It's about 12 miles south of Cincinnati, Ohio. It was definitely a type A, so when I got to high school, fell in love with maths and sciences and knew I wanted to do something with them. And I was talking to my mom, trying to figure out, you know, what could I do with my life? Because at 15, you need to know what you're gonna do with the rest of your life. And uh, she had been reading some articles and came across chemical engineering. And I was like, that sounds perfect, but I can't teach. So what do you do with that? And uh, my mom, who doesn't drink, said, you can make beer and be a brewmaster, or you can be a master distiller and make bourbon. So that's perfect. That's exactly what I wanna do truthfully I have no idea why it sounded interesting because I was one of those people in high school who did not drink and like I said my mom didn't drink we didn't have bourbon in the house up to that point my only experience with bourbon was my parents taking me to Maker's Mark when I was about five or six years old and I hated it absolutely hated it I remember my dad sticking his finger in the fermenter and eating it and I thought I was going to throw up. It just was so gross to me. I didn't like the smell of that room. And then I can't remember if it was the start of the tour, or the end of the tour, but they were handing out fudge. I'm a kid. I absolutely want some fudge. No one told me it was bourbon fudge. That does not taste like fudge. It was horrible. So that being my only experience with bourbon, I really have no idea why I ended up in this industry. But when I was 15 or 16, that just, it sounded so perfect. And being from Kentucky, you know, it was a part of my heritage, even if we weren't involved in it. And so I I went to the University of Kentucky to study chemical engineering, and was fortunate enough to get a co-op while I was in school with a small company not so small now, but a small company in Lexington called Alltech. And at the time, they did animal nutrition supplements and had a brewery. And I thought, that's perfect, because I thought I wanted to do beer. Well, while I was there, they sneakily added two pot stills into the brewery and had no one to run them or clean them, for that matter. And so my boss sent me and one other person from the engineering office to clean them because they had come all the way from Scotland, so they had a lot of dirt on them from the travel. And uh, shortly after that is when he asked me if I wanted to observe a distillation. So not just polish the stills, but you can actually help run them. And instead of observing, I actually got to run the distillation that day. My boss forgot that he had to take his kids to the dentist that day. And so I show up. And he says that, and I think, oh, man, now I have to go to the office. This is going to be boring. And instead, in about five minutes, ran me through the entire process and said, if you have to, just shut it down. I'll be back later. And then left. And so I ran the stills that day. Did not have to shut them down, thankfully. And I guess because I managed to do that that first day, I was cheap labor. They didn't have to hire anyone else, so they just let me do it. From that point on, so I filled over the first 100 barrels, I believe it was, of Pierce Lions Reserve. And from that day on, that was all I wanted to do. I just wanted to make whiskey. And so I set off on that path and have been fortunate enough to know people in the industry and get my foot in the door and have stayed in it ever since. So after college, I have I did one year making laundry detergent. Because the industry, while it was growing, everyone was still so new, nobody was making money, which meant they couldn't hire anybody. Um, so no one was hiring at the time. But fortunately, one of the guys I used to work with at Alltech remembered that I wanted to be in the industry. And so connected me with his friend who was a recruiter and was hiring for Wild Turkey. And so I managed to get on as a distillery production supervisor at Wild Turkey about a year after I graduated college and worked there for four years. Uh, Started off as the number two supervisor. In about a month, that supervisor got shifted to a different department, so I very quickly became the number one supervisor. And so for four years, I was overseeing all of production at Wild Turkey, responsible for third shift and first shift. So the hours for that were spectacular. I woke up at 2 a.m. every day. So (laughs) definitely cut my teeth in a really good way up there. And then it was randomly the beginning of 2015 that I got that message on LinkedIn asking if I knew anyone who would be interested in a startup distillery in Memphis. And I took about two days to think about it and sent my resume in. And my first trip to Memphis was for the interview and I fell in love with the place, I fell in love with the city immediately. but also fell in love with the company. I, everyone I met during that weekend was absolutely fantastic. And then they actually brought me into the distillery, which at the time was a completely empty building. Um, the stairs were absolutely terrifying, but I went up them in heels. And, uh, but seeing the space and seeing how much work was to be done I could see the challenge that it was, and at the time I didn't know I wanted that kind of challenge, but seeing it, having it put right in front of me, I realized that that's exactly what I needed. And so it just, the whole concept of really doing start to finish with this company and with this brand was so thrilling. Creating a new brand and product is incredibly stressful, but it was exhilarating. So just the distillery itself, because we do consider the physical space A product for us you know I actually got to sit in on interior design meetings so I got to help pick tile for the bathrooms and light fixtures and I was amazed at how much I enjoyed that and then with the products themselves of course had to develop the liquid which was super fun you know my nerdy side came out but I also got to have input on the bottles themselves you know the shapes the labels how they looked everything I got input on all of it Um, whereas, you know, where I came from, I had no say in any of that. I would never have say in any of that. Um, And so to be able to put my stamp on every aspect of the product and the brand, it was incredibly rewarding. So yeah, I'm fortunate to have owners who really do um, trust their employees, put faith in their employees. If they hired you to do something, they're gonna do everything they can to to make sure they let you do that job. Um, And, like, on a personal level, it's great. I actually do get along with them, you know. We're friends, we've gone on trips together. Um, And over the years, I think I've proven myself to them to where they've let me take more and more control. and kind of oversee the day-to-day operations of the distillery. Don't let anyone tell you you can't do it. Women engineers aren't really a thing or weren't a thing when I entered college and female distillers weren't a thing at the time either. Um, So there were a lot of people who were saying that, you know, maybe, maybe go somewhere else, maybe do something else. And I ignored all of them and just pushed through and now you see female distillers everywhere. You see women opening their own distilleries. It is fantastic. I mean, it's, it, seeing women in the industry goes right along with just how much the industry has grown and changed in recent years. Um, you know, it used to be super labor intensive and, you know, rolling around a 500 pound barrel. Not the easiest thing. Most women probably don't really want to do that. Um, but so many things are now automated that that labor aspect really isn't there. Yes, the working conditions can be very interesting. You're standing in 150 degree temperatures on a regular basis. Women can put up with that just as well as men can. But women actually have better tastes, better sense of taste and better sense of smell. So if anything, we're actually more qualified to be doing this. And so it's I love going to conferences every year and there are more and more women each year. And it is it's fantastic to not be the only one at the table anymore. So to see everyone embracing this change in the industry it's it's the best time to be a part of it
4: and great job by robbie on that piece finding it and producing the piece and a special thanks to alex castle that was her voice and my goodness what a thing to do and what a way to honor a family heritage and what a way to honor a city and by the way tennessee is a whiskey state but memphis was not a whiskey producing town She didn't know what to do with her life. Her mom said chemical engineer. She didn't know what that meant, but she gave it a shot. But a summer internship at the University of Kentucky at Alltech changed her life. And we talk about that so much here on this show. The idea of young people getting out into the field and learning about their passions and learning skill sets that can, well, open up a life's vocation as it did here. By the way, if you've missed any of our previous podcasts, go back and listen Our last podcast was a Father's Day special and a tribute to fathers, the good, the bad, and every kind in between. Thanks again for listening. I'm Lee Habib, and this is the Our American Stories podcast. the hottest games right from Vegas and all winnings go straight to your bank account. Hundreds of exclusive games, free daily rewards, and come back to get free coins every four hours. Only at highfivecasino.com.
1: high 5 High5 Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited. Play responsibly. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details at High5Casino.com High5
2: Casino You wouldn't expect to hear that we're America's third best city for beer like this one.